Well, thank you. Um, good morning, everyone. I think you all know me. I'm Clark Irvin, a member of the Forum Committee. I'm delighted that we're all here today. First of all, I want to begin by thanking the whole Haley and Harper family for having the good judgment to locate their vacation house very close to that of Mark Shields. Because <laughs> thanks to that strategic positioning, a friendship formed, and the product of that friendship is his presence with us today. As we all know, Mark Shields is one of the nation's foremost political commentators and analysts. Mark Shields is a native of Weymouth, Massachusetts, a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. Over the course of the years, he helped on no fewer than three presidential campaigns, that of Senator Robert Kennedy in 1968, Senator Ed Muskie in 1972, and Congressman Mo Udall in 1976. He became an editorial writer in 1979 for the Washington Post, and his column now is nationally syndicated by Creator Syndicate. Since 1987, as we all know, he's been a fixture on PBS's NewsHour for the last 16 years with the New York Times' David Brooks. He was for 17 years a moderator and panelist on CNN's Capital Gang. Over the years, he's taught politics and press at the Wharton School, the Kennedy School in Georgetown, and he's the author of the very well-received book on the 1984 presidential campaign, On the Campaign Trail. Um, and his wife, Anne, is with us today, and so please uh, join me in welcoming her as well. He's going to talk this morning on the very important and timely topic of why politics matters more in 2017. With that, please join me in welcoming Mark Shields. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Clark. That was a lovely and generous introduction, um, and uh, I particularly want to salute uh, Barbie Harper and uh, Debbie Harper Haley um, and uh, explain how I got here. Debbie approached me and said, Mark, you believe in free speech, don't you? And I said, I do. She said, good, you're giving one. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's how I'm privileged to stand in this uh, hallowed place uh, today. Uh, and uh, just a quick word about Clark. He and I were chatting beforehand about uh, how a single event can change the direction of history, and speculating how if in 1963, instead of President John Kennedy having been assassinated, instead Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, had been assassinated, and uh, what the difference might have been. And with a laser-like insight that I know you've all come to expect from Clark, he said, Mark, there's one thing we could be absolutely sure of if in 1963 Nikita Khrushchev had been assassinated, not John Kennedy. I said, what's that? And he said, Aristotle and Nassus would not have married Mrs. Khrushchev. So it's that, <laughs> it's that kind of pungent and trenchant insight that I, I am uh, delighted to uh, be part of this morning and uh, to be here and to, to stand in this hallowed place. And I, I have uh, nothing uh, but the greatest of historical respect uh, for the, uh, the people of this parish and, and what it has uh, meant in our history. It's, I'm sure you're aware far more than I, William Hawley, the second pastor of St. John's uh, in the early 19th century, uh, broke all rules and crockery and custom uh, by actually marrying African Americans, both free and slave, in, the, in this uh, very church. Uh, and talk about, uh, in, on the eve of Martin Luther King, uh, somebody who was uh, truly a pioneer and established a, a tradition of, of racial respect and equality. And of course, uh, John Harper, 
uh, my friend and neighbor and your late pastor in 1963 when warned by the wardens of the church is the March on Washington for Jobs and uh, Equality uh, in August of 1963, and the city was on edge. Many people fled the city, the fear of uh, violence, um, and was, John was cautioned to close the church. Uh, instead, uh, being the renegade he was, uh, he insisted on having an interdenominational service here on the very day of the march, uh, which was crowded by people of all faiths, all races uh, at 11 o'clock uh, and totally peaceable and a, and a marvelous example uh, of uh, racial harmony uh, that, uh, that he personified and that this church has come to represent. But to this church, to me politically, as somebody who's covered politics, uh, September 8, 1974 stands out. And that was the day that uh, the President of the United States walked across Lafayette Park uh, to the 10 o'clock service by himself and uh, received communion and then went back to the White House where Gerald Ford made a courageous act, an historic act, that cost him uh, 21 points in Gallup poll popularity overnight and may very well have cost him re-election when he pardoned for all crimes he may have could have committed his predecessor, Richard Nixon, and saved the country from incredible strife and disharmony. Um, it was an act of great courage it was an act of uh, historic leadership for which he was roundly thumped by both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and uh, his, uh, his political honeymoon ended on that moment. Uh, but uh, he saved the country uh, so much uh, uh, disunity, so much uh, hate, um, and helped and began truly the healing uh, process. Um, I, I should confess right at the outset my own biases. I, um, I like politics. Uh, I believe that politics is the peaceable resolution of conflict among legitimate competing interests. I don't know how else in a nation as big and broad and brawling and diverse as ours we would resolve our differences except through the political process and by the compromise and consensus that are fashioned by people who devote their time and their goodwill, their intellect, and their energy uh, to that end. Um, I, uh, I like people who run for office. For most of us, life is a series of quiet victories and quiet defeats. If you and I are the two finalists to be the general manager of Great Lakes Coat Hanger Company, and you get the job, and I don't, when the local paper announces your promotion, they don't add, Shields was passed over because of uh, lingering questions about his expense account or his erratic behavior at the company Christmas party. <laughs> but in politics, it's there for everybody you ever sat next to in study hall, or double dated with, or babysat for, to know whether you won or more likely you lost. Um, and uh, I've always admired candidates who could lose with grace and with humor. And uh, in my half century in this business, I've never seen anybody do it better than a fellow named Dick Tuck, who lost a very close Senate primary, state Senate primary in Los Angeles, and when approached by 43 votes, the result was announced. He was approached by a radio reporter from KMPC in Los Angeles, who stuck a microphone in his face and said, how do you feel, Mr. Tuck? And he said, 
the people have spoken. The bastards. So, <laughs> but I, I admire political leadership and political courage. The first time I ever slept in the same quarters with African Americans, or took orders from African Americans, as a matter of course, was at Paris Island, South Carolina, in Marine Corps boot camp. And the only reason I did that was because the President of the United States named Harry Truman, whose grandparents had owned slaves, had the courage and the nobility to declare that no American should ever ask to be fight, to die, possibly, for his or her country, and then to be segregated by race. But that was truly, in the final analysis, un-American. I admired, too, the courage of Ronald Reagan, who about to make his last campaign for presidency. He had run briefly in 1968, Miami Beach against Richard Nixon in 1976. He had challenged President Ford all the way to the Kansas City Convention in 1980. He was going to be 69 years old, which seemed old in 1980. <laughs> and uh, in his home adopted state of California, Californians, of course, vote on everything. They have referenda on right turn on red. They have, you know, whether, whether in fact there should be a four-day holiday instead of a three-day holiday. They vote on everything. And, but this was a very serious proposal called the Briggs Amendment, offered by John Briggs, a Republican state senator from Orange County, which would have criminalized anybody teaching in the state public school system of California for being gay or lesbian. Similar measures had already been adopted in Dade County, Florida, in St. Paul, Minnesota, Wichita, Kansas, and Eugene, Oregon. And it was leading in the public opinion polls. And Ronald Reagan came out against it. Ronald Reagan said, that isn't how we judge teachers in California. We judge them on whether our children learn in their classroom. And he turned the tide, and it went down to defeat. And Briggs amendments, and it's in various incarnations, have never been heard from again. So I, uh, I believe in politics, the kind of politics that rebuilt a war-torn Europe after World War II and the Marshall Plan, the kind of politics that has made our air cleaner for our children, their lives healthier, our water more pure, the kind of politics that take want and fear out of old age through Social Security and Medicare. And so I, 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 I state my premises, uh, I guess my prejudices right at the outset to, uh, to establish uh, uh, candidly what, what my own beliefs are um, and uh, why I, I do believe this political process uh, is important. Um, we have just been through a, an enormously difficult election in the country. Um, and uh, I, I'm cheered to learn from Clark that uh, the 45th president will keep the tradition initiated by uh, James Madison and come to St. John's uh, on Friday uh, to uh, uh, worship rather than be worshipped, uh, I'm sure. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, always, uh, I'm always happy to see tradition honored and respected, especially a, a tradition as, uh, as valuable as this one. But uh, if, if one is to look at this election, 
Um, and I can promise you, as Henry VIII said to each of his six wives, don't worry, I won't keep you long. Um, I, I, uh, I have to say that this is the only election I've ever covered uh, where both candidates were viewed negatively by American voters. It was not a mandate election. It was an election against. There are only two kinds of presidential elections we have elections of either change or continuity. Uh, and change elections uh, have dominated, obviously, when it changes from one party uh, to uh, the other party. Um, and there is a certain biblical imperative in our politics uh, that I've detected uh, in the sense that American voters have a strong inclination, even a pattern, of seeking in their next president what was missing in the president that who has just held that office. Um, uh, for example, uh, after Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, two men of enormous natural talent and great ability, uh, but uh, both with uh, their own problems, which uh, hampered, hindered, and crippled their presidencies in one instance, uh, in Vietnam and Watergate, and a sense of the country having been deceived. The appeal of Jimmy Carter in 1976 uh, is obvious in, in retrospect. Uh, Jimmy Carter the, had, in Johnson and Nixon, the two most experienced people who've ever held the office. Each had been in the House of Representatives, been in the United States Senate, and been Vice President of the United States. And uh, Carter came at a time and said, look, I have never really been in Washington, D.C. I don't know Tip O'Neill or Howard Baker, the leaders of the Congress. Um, elevate me to the nation's highest political office because I'm not a politician. And it had enormous appeal in 1976, the idea that somebody wasn't tainted, wasn't tarnished, uh, wasn't uh, uh, somehow diminished uh, by long political experience. And Jimmy Carter came to Washington and. He was conscientious and patriotic and hardworking, and he seemed, but he seemed to change his mind a lot. So in 1980, along came Ronald Reagan. He hadn't changed his mind since 1964. Uh, we kept looking for and finding in the new president what was missing in the president who had let us down. And Ronald Reagan, instead of representing change, he not only won in 1980, he won re-election in 1984 overwhelmingly. And in 1988, uh, a fellow uh, parishioner of yours, George H.W. Bush, in essence, won Ronald Reagan's third term. I mean, that was an election of continuity. It wasn't change. It was the idea that the Reagan years had been good years and that Bush represented a continuity of that. In 1992, when the country suffered an economic rough patch and George H.W. Bush, in two separate public instances, seemed to be out of touch with what people were suffering or experiencing in the country. You recall at one point in the Richmond debate with Ross Perot and Bill Clinton, he looked at his wristwatch um, to say, sort of communicate, when can I get out of here? When is this going to be over? Uh, but secondly, in a much publicized event at a checkout counter at a grocery store, the electronic scanner was uh, scanning the prices and the the president asked, what is that? And it just seemed to be unaware, and Bill Clinton represented, if anything, somebody in total 
emotional communication with people. I understand your pain, I feel your pain. Um, and Bill Clinton won, again, representing a change and representing difference from the incumbent, in this case, to disappoint us. And so Clinton won not only one term, but two terms. Because Clinton and Reagan are the two successful presidents uh, of the past half century um, in, uh, in retrospect. They were the two presidents who were able to reach across the political divide um, to win re-election um, and to leave that office uh, with uh, the confidence and, uh, and affection of their, uh, their fellow citizens. And it, come, it drives to me the central truth what makes our politics different, and that is that American po Americans are philosophically conservative, but we're operationally liberal in our politics. Now, what does that mean? You ask Americans in the abstract, what about the federal government? It's a pain in the neck. Too much red tape, get them off my back, out of my hair, can't stand them. Pretty darn conservative. However, these same Americans, when told that just outside of Pocatello, Idaho, a single can of tuna fish has been discovered with a trace of botulism in it, have a uniform American reaction. Where the hell was the federal government? I want to report on my office in 24 hours. I want this taken care of. We all want a small, efficient, effective federal government working on our side 24 hours a day cheap. And so what you have is a, a voters who are, Americans are pragmatic more than they're ideological. Americans are far more interested in results than we are in philosophical abstractions. Ronald Reagan came to office at a time of double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment, and uh, he made three promises. He was going to double the defense budget, cut taxes by a third, and balance the budget. Two out of three isn't bad. Uh, four years later, when he ran for re-election, Americans felt uh, yes, and when asked, that they were better off than they had been four years earlier. Bill Clinton came to office at a time of economic downturn and disappointment, and he, and the, at that point, the highest budget deficits in the country's history. We went beyond that in, in no short order, but at the time it seemed rather remarkable, and the issue had been put on the national agenda squarely uh, by a rather remarkable figure, Ross Perot. Uh, Ross Perot had been at zero in every public opinion poll in February of 1992, and by the 15th of May, he was leading both President Bush and Governor Clinton in every major public opinion poll, having spent less than a nickel on public advertising of any kind. He did it on the strength of his case, which was that the country was uh, spending itself uh, into deficit and debt, uh, and that it was unacceptable, uh, that uh, every penny of tax paid by every American living west of the Mississippi in 1992 wasn't enough to cover the interest on the national debt. It didn't put a book in a child's hands or fill a prescription or build a road or, or put fuel in an airplane. It was just to transfer wealth from people of ordinary income to those who held bonds. And he said it's outrageous. He made the case and it was persuasive. It put it, on the, it, put it squarely on the national agenda. Then having made that case brilliantly, Perot pulled out with one of the truly cockamamie excuses I have ever heard in my life 
he said the Republicans are going to sabotage his daughter's wedding. Now, I've been around politics for a long time. I've closed a few saloons at last call. I've heard people tell all the mischievous things they wanted to do to their opponents, like let's call forward our opponent's switchboard to some 800 number in New Jersey. Let's order 600 pizzas for our opponent's headquarters, see cash on delivery. But I've never heard anybody, even after a six-pack of Smirnoffs, say let's sabotage our opponent's daughter's wedding. It was just my wife who's with me today, and I just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. She is from Texas, and the only way I know to sabotage a Texas wedding is to show up sober. Uh, <laughs> but Bill Clinton in, 19, in, in, uh, in 1992 ran on a pledge of raising taxes. Um, and uh, four years later, when Bill Clinton got this through and strictly partisan lines and those Democrats voting for it and it costing them in the midterm elections. But four years later, when Bill Clinton ran for re-election, the same voters when asked, are you better off than you were four years earlier, by a three-to-one margin said, yes, they were better off than they had been. So in one case, you had the president who comes to office, cuts taxes, and people say four years later, it's better, we're better off, and they re-elect him. In the second case, you get somebody who comes to office, raises taxes, and four years later, voters say they're better off and re-elect them. Americans, at their core, I think, remain more pragmatic, more practical than they are, uh, than they are ideological. Um, so after, after Bill Clinton, uh, we don't have to go through that second term and all uh, personal uh, imbroglios. Uh, suffice it to say that the final FBI lab report on that Dress, much discussed dress, came in over the weekend. It's been firmly established that dress was originally worn by J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, so, but in, in 2000, George W. Bush offered a, a different pledge to the American people. Uh, by a two-to-one margin, Americans thought the country was headed in the right direction. Uh, they, they felt good about uh, the direction of the nation but they were frankly embarrassed uh, about the behavior of the president and watching the evening news and trying to explain to uh, a child in the room that uh, uh, fellatio is a Roman soldier or something of the sort. And it was just it was very, very awkward. And George W. Bush promised and pledged, I will restore dignity to the Oval Office. Um, and, uh, and that, quite frankly, uh, was the, uh, in, in my judgment, was the key to his victory. In, uh, in 2000 over Al Gore. The vote for president, the final analysis, always a very personal vote. Um, Americans are far more likely to cast a, a vote based upon their feelings of the individual for president than they are for the Senate or uh, for a House race where more, more likely issues and past records uh, dominate. Um, so after, after George uh, W. Bush's eight years, again change. Uh, in the form of, of Barack Obama, uh, and, and rather remarkable and historic change. Uh, Barack Obama defeated the, the selected candidate for the Democratic nomination, Senator Hillary Clinton, in, uh, in 2008, captured that nomination, uh, then was able to become the first and only Democrat since Franklin Roosevelt to win a majority of the popular vote in two successive presidential elections. Uh, a rather signal uh, achievement. Um, and so 
as we headed into, into 2016, uh, the, the winds of change were blowing harder, I think, than some of us who covered even realized or understood. We understood it was a change election. Uh, we understood it wasn't about continuity and, and Barack Obama's third term in the form of Hillary Clinton, um, that it was a change election, but it was an enormous change election. Before I get to that, and I, I, I just did want to say why, people ask me why I like Ronald Reagan. Um, even though I disagree with Ronald Reagan on five out of every six issues, I, I liked him enormously. And one of the reasons I did was he had about him a personal security and a certain comfort in his skin um, that uh, Americans consciously or unconsciously come to prize in a president. Um, Ronald, Ronald Reagan came to, to office, and let's be very frank about it, uh, we in Washington, especially in the press corps, can be carpers, we can be critics, um, and I think sometimes we're sensitive to the fact that we don't make anything in Washington. Uh, we don't grow crops, uh, we don't make airplanes, um, so sometimes it's difficult to say exactly what we do. And so somebody said, what did you do yesterday, Mark? Well, I was here at 8 in the morning. Well, what did you do? Well, I didn't leave till 7 last night. So I, I can't tell you what I did do, but I can tell you how long I didn't do it. And there is a certain reward or prize for being almost a puritanical in these long hours. Um, President Carter, God bless him, was in the office at 6 in the morning, often there after midnight. Um, but Ronald Reagan came, and he had rather leisurely work habits. He was very rarely in the office before 9.30. He was never in the office after 5. And so uh, the press, uh, being the carping critics we are, started to question whether he had the energy, whether he was up to it. Um, you know, it was, he was approaching 70, and perhaps this task was too much for him. So at the first off-the-record dinner with reporters, Ronald Reagan stands up and he said, you know, they tell me hard work never killed anybody, but I figured, why take the chance? <laughs> and it absolutely disarmed his critics. Uh, I, I saw his humor firsthand in the, uh, in the campaign. Uh, candidate Reagan used to say things sometimes that didn't have a strong empirical foundation to them. Uh, we on the press bus used to call these little jewels, factoids. They weren't fact, they weren't fiction, they were factoids. Um, one of Governor Reagan's favorite factoids was there were 114 taxes on a loaf of bread. There are not 114 taxes on a loaf of bread. And asked about this by a young Associated Press reporter, said, Governor, could you tell us your source for that? With that 10,000 watt grin of his, said, Reader's Digest, April 1954 right next to humor in uniform. And, it was just, and we were, were in Steubenville, Ohio, September of that campaign, and Ronald Reagan delivered his most memorable factoid. Trees cause more pollution than automobiles. We all had it for the phones because we knew this was as good as it was gonna get. I mean, it, it's a, I mean the next time in the New Jersey Turnpike and your eyes are watering from the vehicles in front of you, blame a pine tree in Maine, was the basic message. And as luck would have it, next stop was in Southern California. It was the worst air pollution inversion week of the Los Angeles Basin in 16 months. 
Governor Reagan went out to speak at Claremont College, and some wise guy graduate student hung a sign on a tree, and it said, cut me down before I kill again. <laughs> and to his credit, nobody laughed harder than, uh, than did Ronald Reagan. So that's, that's one of the reasons I have a, a, a soft spot for Ronald Reagan, much to the consternation of my uh, fiercely democratic uh, spouse. Uh, but the, uh, the reality was that the election of this election was very much about change. Um, change in, in a way that uh, went uh, un, unappreciated, uh, I think, by uh, virtually all of us who cover it, with, uh, with rare exception. And uh, the, uh, the voters sent uh, the following message, um, the, the Trump voters that there was an anger that the country cannot secure its borders, uh, that there's a war of terrorism uh, that is being fought mostly by their relatives and their neighbors that does not end. And uh, what's irrefutable is that working people's standard of living has been declining now for more than two generations. Uh, it was against the elite, uh, a message that uh, the journalists mock us, comedians make fun of us, and the rich use us. Um, on the economy, it was that uh, we are in debt, student loans are killing us, Obamacare is working for someone, but not for us. And it was almost a plea to understand us. We don't go to Starbucks. We don't listen to NPR. We don't vacation in the Hamptons or in Hawaii. We care more about high school sports. We eat at Kentucky Fried Chicken, we shop at Walmart, and we fish and we hunt and we hike. And we want our country back. And Donald Trump, alone of the candidates, understood that mood, understood those feelings, and responded to them. And that's why he will be sworn in as President of the United States. He won six states that Barack Obama had carried twice. Think about that. It's tough to pin it on racism when Barack Obama carried Florida, Iowa, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin twice. All of them voted for Donald Trump in 2016. He ran 15 points ahead of Mitt Romney in the state of Iowa. He ran 12 points to Donald Trump ahead of Mitt Romney in the state of Maine. It was a, it, it, it was a, a decisive victory, um, and uh, not to be, uh, uh, not to be cast, uh, cast aside. After any defeat, the natural inclination of the losing party, um, from my experience, is to first blame its defeat on its own candidate. Um, Hillary turned out to be a bad candidate. Um, every losing candidate is thus described. Uh, in, uh, Mitt Romney was condemned by Republicans as somebody who had never had a cavity, never had a pimple. He was too perfect. His shirts didn't wrinkle. Um, you know, he slept in pressed pajamas, and they were pressed when he woke up in the morning. Um, it was just nothing you could identify with him. And, you know, Al Gore, uh, Al Gore was a stiff, Al Gore was so dull that his Secret Service name was Al Gore. 
Uh, you know, and it's a very convenient thing to blame your own losing candidate. And then the second, the second stage is that they, there must be some gimmick that the other side's using that's allowing them to win, causing us to lose. Franklin Roosevelt won the presidency four times. Republicans looking for an explanation said, oh my God, he's good on radio. If we could get somebody as good on radio as Roosevelt, we'd win. And with Reagan, Democrats comforted themselves by saying, he's good on television. If we could get somebody as good on TV, as though the answer to the Democrats' plight was to put together a ticket of uh, Dick Vitale and uh, uh, Oprah. Uh, you know, it's just it's silly, but there's, they're always like, now it'll be tweets, it'll be Twitter. Um, you know, we need, a, we need somebody who can tweet like uh, Donald Trump. Um, that, that is not the answer. The, the most dangerous place on the entire political compass in explaining a defeat is to say, is to blame the customer. The voters who, when they voted for us, were intelligent, patriotic, thoughtful, caring, and mature, have now turned mean-spirited, selfish, racist, and worse. Um, they're the same folks. They're the same people uh, who twice gave a majority of the vote to an African-American uh, candidate. And uh, they've just uh, given Donald Trump uh, the, uh, the presidency, albeit by a reduced popular vote, but nevertheless, as both candidates demonstrated uh, by their strategy, they knew they were running in the electoral, uh, in the electoral college. Um, so I, I just think it is, it is so important uh, for all of us not to move away from politics, not to disdain it, um, to, uh, uh, to engage, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to advocate, um, to, to begin with the simple premise that the person on the other side across that political divide loves this country as much as I do, uh, that we may disagree, uh, that the other person is not uh, uh, morally defective, um, that we, uh, can, we can argue, uh, we can debate, uh, that we, but we both do, uh, do love this country. And uh, I just uh, think that in the, uh, in the final analysis, what politics can do and has done at its best uh, is that uh, makes ours a, a country where um, the powerful are more just and the weak are more secure. Uh, because the, the test for us collectively and individually is that uh, we can make a, a community, both local and national, where uh, um, of which each of us can be proud, um, and uh, where uh, uh, not simply where the poor, poor can be secure, because uh, each of us, in the final analysis, has drunk from wells we did not dig. Each of us has been warmed by fires we did not build, and. Uh, our challenge and our obligation is to make sure that those who come after us uh, will have the same experience and the same blessings. Thank you so very, very much. That was great, Mark. Thank you. So, thank you. you want to take sure. some questions? Yeah, sure. Here's some water. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, friend.
question? I think we've got time for a few questions. Any questions? I have, I have three answers, so if we could just, <laughs> if we just get the questions for the answers. Please, don't, don't be bashful. Oh, yes, I see one of the yeah. back. Yes. The electoral. Um, I've, I've long been a critic of the Electoral College, but it, it, it is, uh, it, it's not going to change. Uh, if you live in Wyoming and uh, an electoral vote represents 180,000 people, and they live in California, and one electoral vote represents 800,000 people. Um, you know, in order to, it's going to take constitutional amendment. That's three quarters of the states to ratify it. I don't see the small states ever doing it. And uh, you know, the argument will be that uh, in a national election, we went what we went through in Florida in 2000 or Illinois in 1960 with questions about state counts uh, it would be paralyzing to the nation to do that nationally. And so that, I think that will be the practical argument against it. The, the selfish argument against it is that small states uh, have a, a disproportionate and larger voice in the choice of a president than do big states, and they're not, they're not going to give it up. Just repeat that. Okay. Question. What are my predictions for the uh, next two years of the Trump presidency? Um, you're talking to somebody who predicted that President Dukakis would not seek a second term. So uh, <laughs> my uh, uh, my prophetic uh, gifts are somewhat limited. Um, I can honestly say, I, in all humility, I do not know. I, I do not know. I mean, usually, you know, somebody's wanting to compare him to Ronald Reagan. I said, no, no. Ronald Reagan came having been governor of California for two terms, uh, having been governor and then elected to a second term, and brought with him a number of people with whom he had worked, uh, whom he knew, who were experienced, uh, and had as his uh, chief of staff, the, the best chief of staff in my time in Washington, Jim Baker, and had talented people. Uh, Ronald Ray, uh, Donald Trump is a total mystery. He's never held a, a public office, a military office. He's never been in a corporate structure. I mean, you know, people say, oh, Trump, you know, Trump Enterprises is a, is a family run. I mean, he's never had a board of directors or stockholders to whom to, to answer or to be accountable. Um, there are no long-term relations outside the family. I mean, other than, you know, a few in the, in the company. So I, I, I do not know. I mean, he's a mercurial man. Um, he, uh, uh, I, I don't know what his, understand this about Donald Trump, I mean, what he achieved. Donald Trump led a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Nothing less. A year ago, we stood here. The Republican Party stood for free trade, liberalized immigration, uh, taming or controlling the cost and expenditures on uh, entitlements um, that it, they were causing uh, financial dislocation and could not be paid over the long run, Social Security, Medicare. Um, and, a, and an activist, even hawkish foreign policy. Donald Trump ran against all four of those. Donald Trump said, I will not touch a single hair on the beautiful gray head of Social Security and Medicare. 
He said America going into Iraq was not simply a disaster. He accused the last Republican president of doing so knowingly. I mean, just an act, I mean, such a, a libelous and, and vicious and mean-spirited accusation that had never been leveled in American political discourse. Uh, his position on immigration was clear and unequivocal from the outset. Um, and so, and, and obviously on trade. Uh, so he, he, it's, it's like somebody ran for the Democratic nomination uh, and, uh, and said, um, we're gonna repeal the minimum wage. Uh, you know, we, we don't need, we need male rights instead of women's rights. Um, and, and just essentially, and said, we, what we need to do is invade more countries and be an active, uh, more, more active international power, and won the nomination. I mean, he was antithetical to it. And then, so what's he gonna do? I, I wish I knew, I don't know. I mean, I would bet that he'll do uh, corporate tax uh, reform. Uh, there'll be some formula for bringing back money from overseas and an incentive and inducement to do so. And with the idea that that would pay for uh, whatever infrastructure uh, expenditures are gonna be made. Uh, I think there'll be personal tax bill and there'll be regulatory relief. Um, I think those have, uh, the, I think those would be the three priorities where they, he can agree with the Republicans in Congress. Um, but he's starting, he's starting his presidency at less than 40% favorable in the country. He has squandered the period from the election to the inaugural, which is generally a period of goodwill when the pre new president reaches out symbolically to uh, cross the aisle, does sort of things, goes to visit pro former presidents of the other party, and uh, you know does does sort of unifying. He's been the opposite. I mean, he's had self-congratulatory rallies where he stood up and encouraged people to say, uh, you know, put her in jail, put her in jail, uh, and uh, lock her up, lock her up. And he's he's been anything but generous toward uh, his defeated opponent. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, uh, I, I worry because you take the Meryl, Meryl Streep tweet a week ago after the Golden Globes award and her statement with how you feel about it. A president gets 150 of those every hour. Left, right, uh, you know, ideological, non-ideological, personal. Um, I don't know how he's going to handle that. I mean, this is a man who has shown a certain thin-skinned attitude. And so I, I don't know how he's going to handle it. Is he going to feel obliged to respond to all of them? Um, now, at the same time, I was encouraged enormously by General Mattis' testimony as Secretary of Defense. I mean, as a man, uh, not simply of, he's a grown-up, he's mature, he's knowledgeable, uh, he's independent. Um, so it, it says something good about Trump that he chose him. If he's still there six months and a year, he'll say something better. Uh, so, uh, but I, I wish I knew. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, um, I, mean I, I had a better chance of predicting Obama in 2009, even though he was fresh and new, than I do with Trump, maybe. Yeah. I think we have time for one more, oh, if sorry. it's short. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and what do you think will 
Well, just pair sure. Well, okay. Uh, worry about the, the promise of restoring jobs to middle America and, the, and uh, Appalachia in the middle of the country, and it just what do I think will happen? I, I think uh, Donald Trump's critics have to concede and acknowledge um, what he's already done on Carrier and, and Ford uh, have been uh, incredibly welcome to his supporters. Uh, now, you know, one could say it's bad economic policy, it's picking winners, it's, you know, all those things that not supposed to do, uh, but 500 families in Indiana had Christmas who weren't going to have Christmas. Uh, Ford uh, showing uh, all the corporate integrity of uh, uh, your local car wash uh, said, uh, uh, you know, oh yeah, oh no, we fully intended, uh, yeah, we're not going to go to Mexico, oh, no, we're going to build it in uh, Michigan, uh, and, and, and cave. I mean, so in that sense, uh, he, it's, it's, it's impressive. You have to understand, um, I think what haunts the Obama administration, uh, especially with the, the people that Trump appealed to, is that uh, there was a savings and loan scandal under President George H.W. Bush. Um, it cost the country, it cost the country $63 billion. Um, not an insignificant sum. 1,100 people went to jail. 1,100 savings and loan executives. We just had a financial crisis in this country in 2008, all the way that lasted five and a half years, that destroyed people's lives, their savings, their homes. Most Americans don't have estates. They don't have trust funds. It's their home. And when that home is devalued, or the neighborhood is devalued, and the house next door is repossessed and left vacant, that leaves a hole in their future, in their family, in their sense of security. In lost jobs, lost income, and lost value, according to the St. Louis Federal Savings and Loan, cost the country $23 trillion, with a T. Not a single person has ever walked to the Bar of Justice to answer for it. We found out, it seemed to be, my God, who did this terrible thing? We must find them and bail them out. <laughs> and so if you're living in Akron, Ohio, if you're living in, uh, in Huntington, West Virginia, and you see, these are the ones who are made whole. These are the ones the country is worried about. And any people are totally indifferent to our plight. Uh, I mean, that's uh, the idea that he's on their side. He's got a great, he's got a lot of latitude. Uh, he's got a long leash uh, with, uh, with these people that he's fighting their fight. So I thank you so much. There are only three things the Democrats have to do in order to win in 2018, I have no idea what they are.